millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 27 in our series for 2020. And today's date is Friday, August the 7th. First, I'll be talking to Lyndall Spooner, the founder and director of consultancy and advisory firm Fifth Dimension. She'll be talking about how business leaders now need to adopt a wartime mindset. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors Chief Economist Alex Joyner about the government's response to the pandemic-induced recession. But now, let's talk to Lyndall Spooner. Lyndall, I have to ask you, this financial year, businesses are adapting to a very different mindset. It's like a wartime mindset. What's your view about that? Yes, I I think it is a wartime mindset. Well, I mean, I think that they need, they have to adapt to a wartime mindset. Whether or not they are is another question. You know, a lot of businesses, whenever there is a downturn, I think the natural way that they react is very protective when in fact they should probably be more innovative and driving to push their businesses forward more than ever. So for me, the wartime mindset is that you you need to be really basically uh, relentless when things get tough and you need to really rethink your business. Where are you headed? What are you going to do to make sure that your business is going to survive and to be ruthless in that vision? Well, the issue is that Australia's experienced this incredible run of economic growth for, what, 
30 years, 30 years or so since the last recession. And so you would expect many businesses would not be prepared for this. That's right. They're not prepared. And I think that a lot of businesses have looked at their success and probably overinflated the the success of things that they've done within their business and not taken into account that a lot of their growth would have come regardless of what they did or they didn't do. Because as you said, we've been living in a growing economy for several decades now. So what happens when all of a sudden that economy changes and you you are now in a downturn, you now have to fight to survive as a business. You need to make sure that everything that you do, every dollar that you invest in the business is actually going to give you a very good return. And you you shouldn't necessarily rely on what you've done in the past because I would say that where you did invest, you, you don't know to what extent it was successful because there was this natural momentum in the economy anyway that was driving everyone forward. So what would you advise your clients to do? Well, the industry that we work in, because we're a combination of a consultancy and a research agency, we work a lot with data and using data to help our clients drive better decision making. So from our perspective, we would want our clients to make sure that they are using the right data to make the best decisions that they can. And unfortunately, when you're in an economy where things are constantly growing, you could be making very poor decisions off data, but you won't know that. You you will really only know that once the economy starts to find. And we very much would be encouraging all businesses right now to go out and look at what they're using to drive their decision making. And when I say data, businesses have two main forms of data. So you have your typical operational type data, your sales, your revenue, and profitability and so on. But then you also have data that comes from your customer base or from the market And it is telling you about how consumers need, um, what they want, what they want to buy at the moment, how that might be changing. And that's the part where businesses often get that data completely wrong. And they potentially don't know that they're looking at the wrong metrics until they start to see a decline. And we're we're heading, or we are in an environment where consumer spending is is declining where consumers are becoming far more discerning in the companies that they want to buy from the products that they want to buy and so you need to have very good data to tell you what how is consumer um, sentiment changing what is it that they're looking for what should you be focusing on to invest in your business to have the right products and services to meet their needs historically most companies will say that they have become you know customer focused and they did that a number of years ago and they they probably brought in some form of customer metric and the CEO has uh, that customer metric as part of their KPI that helped them achieve growth for the business but also let's be honest their bonus and those metrics that they chose to drive their organization they probably chose themselves and often because they went to a conference or a seminar and they saw a large consultancy say that this is a metric that you should you should track and we've got proof that companies have grown based on using this metric. When the reality is there's no one single metric out there to best understand your consumers' needs and behaviours. You need to understand what is the right metric your business in the industry that you're in and also taking into account the type of organisation that you are. And so 
what we do for our clients is we help them identify, well, what is that right metric that is going to help their brand in their market grow as much as possible? And if you break it down to the fundamentals, every time, if I was to ask you a question, Leon, if, if I was asked to ask you three different questions, you'll give me three different answers. And that's the way consumer metrics work. If you choose a different metric based on asking someone a question, you'll get a different answer. And if you're using the wrong metric, then that answer will tell you to invest your business in one area, whereas a better metric will tell you to invest in another area that will actually be more successful in driving growth. And that is, that is what it's all about in terms of having that right data, being a wartime CEO, be prepared to just let go of what you've done in the past. Doesn't matter if you were the one that brought in these metrics, find the metric that's gonna help you grow in a very tough economy by better understanding your consumers and their needs than your competitors and will ensure that your business is investing in the right things to drive growth. Well, the issue though is that you have to find the right metric depends on different industries. Different industries will have, different sectors will have different metrics, surely. That's right. That's absolutely right. And, and I think that this is where a lot of the big consultancies they tend to have one metric that they have pushed for years. And, you know, they'll talk about how, you know, they have all of these case studies on why their particular metric is better than another metric. But that's that's not actually the case. You should, there, there are a number of different things that will determine what is the right metric for your business. One, it has to fit with your industry. So, for example, some industries have a very high risk of consumers making a purchase in that industry. Others have a very low risk. So I don't want to get the car that I buy wrong because that's a very expensive purchase, but it really doesn't matter what what flavor of Tim Tams I buy this week. That's a very low risk purchase. You've got your brand to take into account. Are you a premium brand? Are you a mid-level brand? Are you a budget brand? You need to understand also things like just consumers themselves and their behavior and the extent to which they they switch brands do they have multiple repertoires of brands that they regularly deal with or are they highly loyal to one particular brand and what are they influenced by one of the big things i think that we'll see change in terms of data metrics just over the next um, couple of years is the way that we even think about attracting customers and, and getting customers to be loyal. You know, a lot of our marketing models that we've been using were actually developed back in the 1800s. Now, it's a very different place and it's, it's very different as to how consumers get introduced to brands, select brands. I can go, you know, I can have a, a need today. I could go onto the internet, you know, Google who provides a certain product. And I could actually buy from a company today that I've never heard of five minutes beforehand and choose that company over brands that I've, I've known my entire life. So we need to take all of these things into account when we find the right metric. And I just want to also highlight there is no one single metric. You need an ecosystem of metrics to understand all of these different areas and considerations that we should have. Well, final question. What will the post-COVID-19 consumers be like? Will they be like the consumers we've known before or will they be very different? Consumers will be very different. 
look, there will, there will be certain things about our behaviour that will go back to normal, but there are other things that have fundamentally changed. And if you, if you just go back to the science of, you know, it only takes 66 days for people to develop new habits on average. And we've been in lockdown for way longer than six days. And the average consumer today is going to be far more discerning. They'll be thinking a lot more about who they choose to buy from and what types of products they, they want and they need in their life. They, they've had a long time to, to think about this. They've been trying new channels. They've become more digitalized. They've been open to new brands. They have bought new brands, you know, even when they've gone down to the supermarket and their favorite products are not on the shelf. So, no, the, the consumer moving forward will be very different and be much harder to win. Uh, will they be more aware of their environmental footprint? Will they think more about how their spending habits will impact on society? I think they definitely will. Look, a lot of these things, it's not like they have come about overnight. The whole thing with COVID is that it has brought forward things that were already in play. It just brought them forward faster. So people were already starting to think about environmental concerns. They were already you know thinking about consumerism and the impact that they have on the environment now give give people a couple of months to sit at home spend more time you know they they can think more about their product choices it's changed the way that they they live and a lot of those changes they'll see as a positive change now if it if it is a positive change then they are likely off it so it's a fast forward of things that we already happen it's exactly the same as internet banking we we know that internet banking for example was already had a very high uptake there were some people sitting on the fringe and now because they they weren't able to go down to their local bank you know we've had more people brought in to that environment and once they find it easier and a benefit they don't they don't go back. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch. And uh, Lyndall, uh, we'll watch it with great interest. And thank you very much for your insights. Thank you very much. And now let's talk to IFM Investors Chief Economist, Alex Joyner. Well, Alex Joyner, we had some ugly figures from the government's economic statement. Massive, massive deficit not seen since wartime. And uh, debt is absolutely going through the roof. Unemployment is going to be 9.2%, possibly more, uh, which is going to mean some 1.4 million Australians out of work. Uh, what's your assessment of it? Yeah, well, what the government had to say in its economic and fiscal update was was pretty dire, but nonetheless realistic and, and also appropriate. I think if, if this does anything, hopefully it breaks us away from the narrative that you have to be in surplus as a government to be seen as a good economic manager. And if you're in deficit, you're a bad economic manager because some deficits are good. And even though this is a very large one, it will run up our net debt and, you know, we need to pay it back. It's something that's been very appropriate. You know, the government will have about an $86 billion deficit this fiscal year, 2020-21, will be close enough to a $185 billion deficit. And that's that's around 9.7% of GDP, unprecedented since the Second World War. But no one would really be critical of the government having to do this. I would argue that with interest rates so low and, and the government's ability to borrow, maybe they could have done a little bit more. And, and things that I would specifically be critical of would be the government encouraging people, and this, this was in the, in the update yesterday, encouraging people to take out their superannuation balance. The 
government extended that program to the end of the year. And, and the reason I say that is that, the, you know, the government has told us it can borrow at 0.8% per year, whereas they're, they're telling people to take out their superannuation money where they might earn 5 to 7% conservatively for the, the remaining years to retirement. So, you know, to me, the government could do more to, to broaden that safety net. It did do that with its uh, announcements on the JobKeeper and Job Seeker initiatives, but they've been wound back a little bit. But for me, I think this is just a first foray. You know, the, the government forecast out two years. That's probably reasonable. I don't think they have a good handle on, on, on where the economy is going to go and the, the outbreaks. And that was something they also mentioned yesterday was just that uncertainty around where the economy is going. You know, the Victoria was held out as the example of this is the uncertainty that faces us due to the pandemic. So for the government, you know, I think they'll they'll need to to continue to support the economy uh, and continue to add stimulus. And that's probably what the October's budget will present is that if we are to have an unemployment rate of you know, 9 to 10% by the end of the year, then we'll need to continue to support these people. Because in the end, we've asked them to step out of the labour market due to the greater public health good and government needs to be there to support them. Because if they're not there to support them, then this thing can really roll into something a little bit more sinister where you get people that are unemployed for an extended period of time. They change their behaviours in the way they interact with the economy. They're put under pressure in terms of their, their mortgage obligations if they have mortgages. And then that rolls into a whole household debt crisis and, and we can get some bigger problems. So you know, we need to do enough now and we need to really support that household and business sector in keeping people at least attached to the labour market while we sort of see this health crisis through. The documentation today was basically suggesting we could be seeing a snapback, uh, but and certainly Frydenberg's words were suggesting that. But do you see a snapback? Or, I mean, this is going to be a very long, drawn-out process. Yeah, it is. Um, look, the the government's economic forecasts were you know, credible in, in the circumstances, and you, you wouldn't critique them too heavily because we just don't know how that, that's going to pan out. We know that the second quarter of this year, the June quarter, will be a big negative. Now the government's penciled in a, a minus 7% decline in, in GDP and then that recovery. So we get sort of a 2.5% contraction in the economy in 2020, 2021 because there is that recovery. Now in the in the information that was presented uh, in the update, you know, it, the charting in particular, it makes it look like a V-shape. You know, it's a very, very sharp and precipitous line in, in the level of output. Uh, and that comes back relatively quickly in terms of, of the shape of, of the recovery. But it doesn't come back fully. Uh, and I think that's the key point that obviously there's going to be a, a sharp decline, a pretty sharp increase because restrictions are being lifted. So you're turning the economy off. You're turning a good section of it back on, but you're not turning it all back on. And so you see a little bit of a V, but not a, not a full V back up to where we were in, say, 2019 levels of output. And the reason for that is that, one, the Victorian economy is, is shut down. Victoria is around about 23% of the Australian economy, around about 28% of the labour market. You know, we saw the the Treasury's estimate is that that will take about three quarters of a percentage point off economic growth in the third quarter. So you're obviously not going to get Victoria snapping back. So you don't get the full snap back for Australia. And then it's just the the differences in the rate at which industries can reopen. And obviously, you know, retail started to open up in in some states in New South Wales and Queensland and others, cafes and restaurants, but they're, they're acting differently. People are much more conservative in their spending. They're still 
was cautious to get out there. And then you go to the extremes where around travel, domestic travel, you know, I think people are still quite cautious to get on aircraft domestically and they certainly can't get on them uh, in terms of international travel. And that's something that the Prime Minister has said he's going to be sort of shut for an extended period of time until we sort of have a vaccine, I think, were his words. So, you know, these parts of the economy won't be coming back at all. And that's why you just can't, it's, it's, it's an almost impossibility to get this V-shape. So, you know, we are going to get a, a limited snapback and then it's going to be a tough grind back to, to where we were. And that's going to happen over a couple of years. And the thing that we need to focus on is the labor market in that context because we know that economies do snap back or come back you know in a reasonable amount of time sort of 18 to 24 months it's labor market that to me are the are the ones that take a long much longer to repair now i guess in the in this crisis we have the advantage of the job keeper initiative keeping people attached to their employer but they don't they certainly don't have to be attached and and as this crisis goes on the pressure is on businesses to do something about their, their wages costs and their staff numbers and we've seen that in the data you know the labor force data from the ABS last month showed us that there was a high proportion of people 150,000 people that went from zero hours to becoming unemployed so you know they were attached to their employer working zero hours and then that employer has decided well this is not sustainable for, for their business uh, and those people have become unemployed. So, you know, this this labour market situation is the one that we really have to focus on. And that brings into the debate things around population growth. You know, population growth outlined in the update yesterday was, was it's going to be very, very weak. I think it was 0.6%. Uh, percent, which is very, very weak for Australia. We sort of run at 1.6% year-on-year population growth. So the thing is, the Reserve Bank and others have this population growth uh, as a tailwind to the economy and and getting back to about 1.5%. So the Reserve Bank's forecast, for example, were by mid uh, 2022, working age population growth will be 1.5% again. And that was what it was uh, in 2019 and before this crisis. Now, you know, if the unemployment rate still 6 or 7% at that time, you'd be a little bit aggrieved as someone that's unemployed that, you know, the government has chosen to bring in so much labour supply and add spare capacity to the labour market while you're looking for a job. You know, the whole reason we couldn't get the unemployment rate down as low as other countries did for the crisis is our labour supply was just outrunning our labour demand. We were creating a hell of a lot of jobs, a lot of jobs, a lot more jobs as a proportion of the economy as than the US was, but we weren't able to get the unemployment rate down. And, and that will be the situation uh, if population growth does return to, to where it has been, you know, as soon as we possibly can get it there, you know, that might be good and it might be a tailwind for some sectors, but it will mean that the, the spare capacity in the labour market will be eroded at a much slower pace. And I, I don't really think that's good for anyone. Basically, uh, we have had to rely on the RBA, monetary policy in the past, mm. and had to rely on immigration and population, but none of these can now do the heavy lifting. So the approach to the labour market needs to be much more sophisticated. Well, that's right. It's, it's basically down to fiscal policy. You know, this was some of the points made by Governor Lowe in his speech earlier this week were around, you know, it, it's really down to fiscal policy to do things. He's been talking about this for a long time. You know, it's pretty indicative that basically every communication from the Reserve Bank, whether it be a speech or a, a formal communication, talks just as much about fiscal policy as it does monetary policy. Because I think the central bank knew before this crisis that you know the effectiveness of its policy was was coming into question. It wasn't be wasn't able to do as much with the policy tools it had. Now it can certainly do more in terms of unconventional policy. But what is that unconventional policy going to do? You know, it can expand its balance sheet a whole lot more uh, if it chose to. But really, what what are the 
outcomes for the economy there. And, and the econ- Governor Lowe ruled out negative rates. He ruled out uh, exchange rate intervention, all these things. He ruled out uh, direct financing. That was an interesting part of his speech was he talked a lot about MMT and helicopter money and these sorts of concepts. So in the absence of anything new and original, you know, the Reserve Bank is really at the end of of what it can do with any effectiveness in terms of bolstering the economy. So again, it comes back to fiscal policy. It comes back to just what the government can do uh, in terms of, you know, enhancing productivity, deregulation, labour market deregulation, these sorts of concepts to to try and get that spare capacity in the labour market eroded just as mu- as quickly as they possibly can because the Reserve Bank is is going to be uh, a much diminished force, I guess, I, in my view, uh, in, in the policymaking arena for a number of years. It's just going to have its policy settings set in stone for at least two to three years and hopefully it can get interest rates up. But, you know, it's really going to be, a, I think, a paradigm shift going forward where, where fiscal policy policymakers are going to have to sort of carry the weight on the economy uh, rather than the reliance on monetary policy that we've had for, you know, a couple of decades now. What we're talking about here is fiscal policy in terms of building roads, dams and stuff like that, but more in terms of microeconomic reform, Asian stuff. Well, that's right. You know, obviously I'm going to always talk about infrastructure and I, I think infrastructure is a big part of what we need to do. Like there is a demand for infrastructure. So that's jobs and growth, that's productivity enhancing. But what we really need, as you, as you say, is, is this sort of 80s to 90s style bold productivity enhancing reform. You look back, you look at the charts, the 90s were sort of the, the halcyon days for productivity growth, you know, one and a half to 2% productivity growth consistently. And that's what drove living standards. It's also what drove wages growth because, you know, the greater a worker's productivity is, the easier it is for their employer to pay them more. And really that's going to need to be the driver. The, the key things that have driven Australian growth over the last decade are now becoming more inconsistent than ever. You know, we've had the, the terms of trade tailwind and that's always going to serve us well. It's not something that we can control because it's just basically global commodity prices. That's served us well and when it's serving us well, that's that's great, but we can't control that. That's just the sort of the whims of, uh, of the global economy. Population growth and labour supply is another thing that's added to our economy. And then the thing that's been lacking is is productivity growth. That hasn't been a driver and that it needs to be a driver. And this is why 2018, 2019, we're talking about per capita GDP recessions and things like that, because our growth was being inordinately driven by population growth and not by people doing more or producing more. It's just a matter of there being more people in the economy. And that's sort of a lazy way to grow. And now it's been proven to be at least for the next couple of years, uh, a way that we can't grow because we just can't grow our population without overseas migration coming in. So it's really down to the fiscal policy side, other avenues. We talk about productivity reform. Uh, You know, the government talks about that. That's hard. What I, I think the government has been talking about a little bit more recently is bringing forward tax cuts for households. Now, you know, it's, it's not tax reform. We would like to see tax reform. I think the Treasurer has called it tax reform, but it's not. It, it's income tax reform and it's income tax cuts. It's not root and branch taxation reform that would improve productivity outcomes. It's not, it's not improving the GST, which most economists would agree is a, is a good way to, to tax people, as long as you compensate those that are unduly affected. That would raise enough money to, to then do that in, income tax reform. 
and then uh, you know it allows for things like states to to move from stamp duty to payroll tax and things like that that we know would add to the productivity of, of the economy. So it is down to the the government. It is going to be hard for the government, but it is it is what they're elected for and what they'll they'll need to do. So that'll be interesting to see uh, as we approach that uh, October. Uh, budget. So the government will have to bring out a proper budget rather than this little update. What is in that? Uh, you know, what is what are we materially going to see in this document that will, will shift uh, the Australian economy and, and make us better going forward? Because make no mistake, the Australian economy was not doing that well coming into this crisis. We need to do better if we are going to be a better economy coming out of it. Right. Okay. Well, that'll be fascinating to watch. And Alex, thank you very much for your time. No problem, Leon. Anytime. So what's happening in the news? And the virus is a summer guest house from hell. Any remaining hope that the coronavirus that's pushed the US, Europe and much of Asia into historic economic downturns would take a holiday was all but crushed this week. The virus continues to rampage through parts of the US and engulf nations across the developing world, particularly India, Brazil and South Africa. It's made a comeback in Japan as well as areas of Europe and China. At its current pace of about 250,000 or so new cases a day, there could well be more than 50 million infections worldwide by the end of 2020. As fatalities from the pandemic will go up well over a million, Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Transnational Institute in California, estimated in mid-June. The time until the release of a safe and effective vaccine will be very challenging, with countries like the US and Brazil potentially leading the way in severity, said Michael Osterholm, director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. The same type of surge in daily cases that took place in the US around the Memorial Day holiday could be repeated around Labor Day when schools reopen, he said. And domestic building sites will be limited to five people in Victoria under the new six-week restrictions. Almost all retailing in Melbourne will be closed under restrictions announced by the state government. This will see a quarter of a million more Victorians stood down or sent home as thousands more shops, offices and factories close their door this week under stage four COVID-19 restrictions, including a nighttime curfew. Most national retailers will not suffer a sufficient drop in sales to qualify for the 1500 a fortnight JobKeeper subsidy. So stood-down staff will have to apply for the 1100 a fortnight JobSeeker payment or rely on accrued leave. And Victorian builders say they will take a hit to revenue totalling up to $456 million a day from sweeping new restrictions on construction in the state, forcing some companies to close their doors entirely. Under tough restrictions announced on Monday that are designed to slow the spread of the state's coronavirus outbreak, the number of workers on large building sites such as apartment complexes and office towers is to be reduced to a quarter of the normal number. Construction employs 300,000 people, about 8.5% of the Victorian workforce, and represents 13% of the state's economy. But some builders are concerned that under the new rules, they'll not be able to safely perform some labour-intensive tasks such as pouring concrete slabs. There are also concerns that another rule that restricts people to working on one site for the six-week duration of the clampdown will make it impossible for tradespeople to carry on their businesses. And the exemptions from the closures announced on Monday include supermarkets, grocery, food and liquor shops, convenience stores, petrol stations, pharmacies, post offices, hardware, building and garden supplies, shops retailing for trade, maternity supplies, motor vehicle parts for emergency repairs only. Retailers will also be able to work on-site for the purposes of fulfilling online orders. Personal care services, including hairdressers, will be closed, as will car washes and photographic film processes. 
Locksmiths, laundries and dry cleaners are exempt from the closures. Vast parts of manufacturing and industry will also close, although mining and farming will be allowed to continue work, especially agriculture and aquaculture food suppliers. The Victorian Cabinet has considered leaving abattoirs open to secure supplies of fresh meat, but Daniel Andrews has publicly questioned whether butchers will be allowed to operate. Abattoirs in Victoria have proved to be COVID-19 hotspots. Manufacturers not into medical production, including masks and protective clothing as well as medicines and paper products like toilet paper for household use, face closure. Hardware, building and garden stores will be open to tradespeople only, with a public limited to contactless click-and-collect pick-up only. And industry groups fear the latest restrictions will be the final nail in the coffin for many small businesses. Despite the government announcing a $5,000 support payment for affected businesses, Council of Small Business Chief Executive Peter Strong said there would be a high number that would not survive. And West Farmers will close its Target and Kmart stores in the Melbourne and metropolitan region and only allow trade customers at its bunning stores following the imposition of Stage 4 restrictions in Victoria. All of the group's retail businesses will be able to continue online operations, however its bricks and mortar stores will be forced to shut to the general public. Officeworks will be open only to service business customers. Bunning stores will be able to serve trade customers, but not retail customers, who will have to rely on home delivery or contactless click and collect, while Officeworks stores can serve business customers but will be closed for in-store retail customers. The restrictions mean a large proportion of its approximately 30,000 employees in Victoria will be forced to stand down. In the Melbourne metropolitan area, the company has 53 Bunning stores, 39 Kmart stores, 34 Target stores and 42 Officeworks stores. These stores provide 17% of the group's total retail sales. And Victoria manufactured a state of confusion. The Victorian government's decision to allow greyhound and horse racing to continue during Melbourne's imminent lockdown, as tens of thousands of businesses close their doors, has sparked anger and confusion around the OPAC selection process for essential businesses. Corporate giants like JB Hi-Fi, Officeworks, Harvey Norman, Maya and Kmart are entering an enforced six-week hibernation after previously, successfully, arguing they were essential businesses. They are now facing an enforced six-week hibernation along with other furniture and homewares, stationery, electrical and electronics, motor vehicle and motor parts, recreational goods, department stores and clothing and footwear retailers. And Victorians who still have a job but have run out of sick leave will be given $1,500 pandemic disaster payments to stay home for two weeks if they are at risk of having contracted the coronavirus. The payments will be provided by the federal government to augment a state government scheme already in place and are designed to stop the virus spreading even further. The federal government also confirmed it would make changes to the new JobKeeper wage subsidy, which begins in late September, after the Victorian government shut down most of the state's economy on Monday. Prime Minister Scott Morrison did not rule out reintroducing the JobKeeper wage subsidy for the childcare sector in Victoria or coming up with some other arrangement. The sector nationwide lost its eligibility last month before the Victorian catastrophe put the handbrake on the economic recovery. And real estate agents are bracing for a severe cash flow crunch over the next six weeks as sales are shut down as part of the level four restrictions imposed in the Greater Melbourne area. Starting midnight on Wednesday, real estate activity including on-site inspections and private open homes will be banned except for settlements that are already underway. Online auctions and inspections are allowed. Those who are scheduled to move homes are also allowed to proceed. Real Estate Institute of Victoria President Leah Kalnan said the lack of cash flow coming through the next six weeks would put a strain on the industry. And keeping the official cash rate on hold at 0.25% and maintaining its three-year bond yield target of 0.25%, the Reserve Bank of Australia said unemployment will hit 10% because of Victoria, 
with a more subdued rebound keeping the jobless at 7% for a couple of years. And more than 70,000 jobs could be lost because of the Victorian government's stage 4 lockdown, wiping out recent job gains according to a new analysis. Using data on how stage 4 affected New Zealand's economy, KPMG predicted the new restrictions will hit service sector jobs hardest and see the loss of 41,000 jobs gained in the sector in recent months. The production centre, which includes manufacturing, utilities and construction, could see a 5% drop in employment or the loss of 32,000 jobs. And Melbourne house prices dropped 1.4% in July, accelerating an annualised rate of 16.8%, while Sydney lost 1% as a surge in COVID-19 cases reignited fear of a longer and deeper recession that could result in widespread forced selling. The CoreLogic July index showed house prices fall in Melbourne had quickened since May when they dropped 1.1%. By June, they were down 1.3%. And ANZ Australian job ads rose 16.7% in July, following the 41.4% increase in June. Job ads are still down 30% since February and down 34% for the year. The pace of gains slowed, particularly in the second half of the month. The second wave of COVID-19 cases and return to stage 3 restrictions in Melbourne and the Mitchell Shire have undoubtedly weighed on the recovery in labour demand so far. SEEK has noted a divergence between Victoria and most other states and territories in recent SEEK job ads. And Australia retail turnover rose 2.7% in June 2020, seasonally adjusted, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics retail trade figures. Ben James, Director of Quarterly Economic Wide Survey, said this followed a rise of 16.9% in May 2020. Even before its second lockdown, Victorian retailer was suffering to a greater extent than its peers in other states. Spending was down 6.2% in the June quarter in Victoria, compared with a 2.4% decline in New South Wales and a 0.5% decline in Queensland. The gap between Victoria and other states will widen considerably over the second half of this year, with retail activity highly restricted until at least September. And there have been clear winners and losers among different retail segments. Spending on food, such as from supermarkets or butchers, has held steady in recent months. The same is true for department stores. Meanwhile, spending on household goods has surged to 16.5% in the June quarter. The impact of COVID-19 has fallen largely on the shoulders of clothing and footwear retailers, down 22.5% in the quarter, and cafes and restaurants, down 28.6%. And Australia's wine exports dropped to 4.3% in the June quarter after COVID-19 restrictions around the globe caused consumption at restaurants and bars to shrink and supply chains were disrupted. Wine Australia, the national body which oversees the industry, said on Tuesday that exports in the June quarter fell to 716 million from 748 million a year ago. This followed an even bigger fall of 6.6% to 522 million in the March quarter. And gaming giant Tabcor will tumble to a full year loss after wiping up to 1.1 billion off the value of its wagering assets, blaming the COVID 19 pandemic and the direct impact of the government's attempts to control it. The write-down comes just over a week after the company's long-serving chief executive David Attenborough and chairman Paula O'Dwyer announced their impending exits, and Tabcor completed the tortuous integration of UBET, which is a wagering platform it acquired from TAPS. Tabcor said it already expects its full-year net profit before significant items to slump more than 32% to at least $267 million, including the write-down. This could mean Tabcor will dive more than $800 million into the red. The company, which stood down 700 staff early in the pandemic, has already lined up with the federal government's wage subsidy JobKeeper after its revenue slumped 50% in April. And Virgin Australia will sack 3,000 employees, or about a third of its workforce, discontinue its budget Tiger Air Australia brand, and offload its long-haul international jets as part of a relaunch under its new owner, Bain Capital. Australia's number two airline, which went into voluntary administration in April, owing $6.8 billion, released its relaunch plan on Wednesday morning. 
The moves were designed to make it stronger, more profitable and competitive carrier, it said in a statement. Bain and Virgin have also left the door open to restarting Tiger Air after the COVID-19 pandemic. And Regis Healthcare was hit by a ransomware attack over the weekend when an unidentified party published sensitive documents relating to an Adelaide facility, prompting the federal government's Australian Cyber Security Centre to warn of an increasing threat to aged care and hospital facilities. Documents apparently detailing details of individual residents' care and accommodation agreements, employee appraisals and passwords relating to Regis Eastern Suburbs Adelaide Home in Burnside were posted to a public website. The aged care provider said in a statement it had been targeted in attack, but the attack did not affect delivery of resident care or services and was not materially affecting Regis Healthcare's day-to-day operations. Regis operates aged care homes in Victoria, but has not suffered infections among residents, nor has it been linked to infections in the COVID-19 pandemic to the same degree as listed rival Estia Health or unlisted rival Bupa. However, an attack on its IT system represents a threat as it manages its homes and tries to keep them safe. The Federal Australian Government's Cyber Security Centre issued a critical warning on Sunday that ransomware known as Maze is threatening aged care facilities across the country. The Maze ransomware is designed to lock or encrypt an organisation's valuable information so that it can no longer be used and has been observed being used alongside other tools, which still important business information, the centre said in an update on Sunday. And underwear and clothing giant Bonds is rushing an extra 4 million face masks into Australia to meet extraordinary demand as tough news restrictions come into place in Victoria and the rest of Australia on high alert over the coronavirus. The 105-year-old brand, owned by US giant Haynes after a $1.1 billion takeover of Pacific Brands in 2016, has shipments totalling 4 million masks ready to come to Australia in August and September by air freight and by ship. The chief executive of Haynes in Australia, David Bortolucci, said the group had been moving quickly to try to keep up with the demand. The company gained approval from Australia's Therapeutic Goods Administration in June for its reusable masks. There's been a strong response from customers attracted by the trusted Bond's name and its long history in Australia. The chesty Bond image has been famous and is considered by marketing experts as one of the icons of Australian advertising. Mr Bortolucci said the Australian arm had tapped into the expertise of the Global Haynes Group to develop a new range of masks. Haynes has already supplied 450 million masks to the United States government. The Victorian government has made mask wearing compulsory outdoors except for short periods of exercise, while people in other states are increasingly choosing to wear masks outdoors. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Dean Foley, the founder of Australia's first Indigenous-focused startup accelerator, Barriamal. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslake about the state of the Australian economy and what's needed to get us up and running again. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBLZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 